Well, all right, I'll make you all the deal. If you promise not to tell Pastor Wade that the first time he goes out of town, we made it on time, I promise to keep it interesting this evening. We have an amazing evening planned for you tonight. The ambition of our task shows the audacity that these pastors possess. We're probably crazy to do it, but we plan on showing you parallels between two chapters in Jeremiah and two chapters in the book of Revelation. The chapters in consideration are Jeremiah 50 and 51, being compared with Revelation 17 and 18. This evening, we will only be covering the text of Jeremiah 50 and comparing it with Revelation. And that means that next Monday, we'll have a very similar flow and we'll be covering the text of Jeremiah 51 and making the same comparison with Revelation 17 and 18. Obviously, our themes are going to carry over between these two evenings. So we want to assign you homework in advance so that you get the most out of these studies. We want you to read Jeremiah 50 and 51, and then read Revelation 17 and 18. Do that as many times as you can this week. Listen to them on audio in the car if you have to. But by listening to them in parallel with each other like that, you'll pick up more imagery than we're able to cover in the time frames that we have because it is truly prolific. As we get started this evening, it's hard to overestimate the importance of Babylon in the Bible. I'd like to show you a slide from the Lexingham Bible Dictionary because there are 287 references to Babylon in the Older Testament. There are 82 references to the inhabitants of Babylon. Somebody said that's a bunch. That's a bunch. This is not limited to the Tanakh. It's mentioned three times in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus alone. And that opens the New Testament narrative. Justin's going to walk you through a few of those. All right, so starting in Matthew 1.11, says, And Josiah, the father of Jechoniah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. Babylon. See, Matthew here mentions the time of the exile to Babylon. Our next reference is one verse following. It says, after the exile to Babylon, Jephaniah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Matthew here mentions the time after the exile to Babylon. And then moving forward to Matthew 1.17, says, thus there were 14 generations, and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Ma then Matthew divides the genealogy into three groupings of 14 and references the Babylonian exile two more times. So clearly, Babylon is an important marker in God's timeline to have it mentioned four times in six verses of the opening chapter to the Newer Testament. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So let's, let's refresh our memories with a brief history of Babylon and its origin. Starting in Genesis 10, Babylon is introduced 
before the nation of Israel is ever introduced in the word. So Babylon comes first in its introduction in the word of God. This is similar to darkness being present before light in Genesis chapter 1. Israel comes on the scene in the midst of chaos and darkness, just like when the light comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 1. As we read an excerpt from Genesis 10, we want you to notice that Shinar is the region of Babylonia, and that will help you as we read from Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. Genesis 10, verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. Say mighty hunter. Mighty hunter. Mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first sinners of his kingdom were Babylon, Babylon. Erech, Akkad, Kalne, and Shinar. <laughs> Numerous Christians have held rather imaginative positions about Nimrod. Tonight, let's look at what the text actually says. You guys up for that? Yes. yes. Nimrod was called a mighty warrior, which is Gibor in Hebrew. Nimrod is called a mighty hunter, which is Gibor Said in Hebrew. Most of our Bibles say that he was these things before the Lord. The actual Hebrew phrasing involves the word pane and can mean before the face or in the face of the Lord. Let's look at what Rashi says. We have a slide for you. Wow, that's very small. So Rashi's commentary is a bit hard for me to read from here. But uh, this will be available to you in a PDF, and I will read it off my laptop. So verse 8, his commentary on, he began to be a mighty man, is to cause the entire world to rebel against the Holy One. Wow. Blessed be he with the plan of the generation of the dispersion. <coughs> Under verse 9, it's broken up into three parts, a mighty hunter being the first one. He ensnared people's minds with his speech and misled them to rebel against the omnipresent. The second part being before the Lord. He intended to provoke him to his face in reference to the Lord. Say, in your face! In your face! Not a good thing when you say that to God. No. Third one. Therefore, it is said. It's said about any man who is brazenly wicked, who recognizes his master and intends to rebel against him. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. So there's a great deal of speculation regarding exactly what Nimrod is and what his role is with the Tower of Babel. Tonight it's not within the scope of our study to delineate those views from one another. Our point is not about Nimrod. Our point is that the first mention of Babylon in the text centers on a worldwide rebellion against God. The role that Nimrod did or did not play is unimportant to the imagery in the text. Babylon is introduced into the biblical narrative as conceptually linked to a worldwide rebellion that God himself puts down. When Moses penned the book of Genesis, he highlights a Hebrew wordplay that I want Justin to work through with you. <laughs> All right, this is Genesis 11, verse 9. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused 
Or in Hebrew, that word is Balal. Because there the Lord Balal, the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now this was done intentionally to emphasize Babylon as the epitome of human pride and confusion in the relationship between God and humans. That concept stays consistent throughout the Bible, and it contrasts Babylon with Jerusalem frequently. So when you're thinking about that, like the introduction of characters to any book, and then they continue in the human drama or narrative, there is a reason that the author from the onset of the mention of Babylon associates Babylon with the confusion in the human race. And and that's intentional. As opposed to, say, Jerusalem that is the throne of God and the beginnings of making mankind into a prince with God. That is intentional. There's also something about Nimrod that becomes somewhat sensational, in part, because the LXX, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, it refers to Nimrod as a gigas, a giant. So the connections between Babylon in historical text that are Babylonian and the Genesis 6 events are numerous, but are circumstantial in that they are outside the text itself. Nick's going to give you a sampling of those Babylonian texts. Okay, so first of all, our first sample tonight is the Epic of Gilgamesh. (laughs) This is a story about a demigod of superhuman strength that closely parallels some of the Genesis account, but it does pervert truth and emphasizes false deities. Mm. Secondly, we have something called the Anuma Elish, This is a story that closely parallels the Genesis flood, but this one emphasizes the supremacy of the Babylonian god Marduk. Thirdly, and we're not going to go deep into this one, but Anunnaki and their obvious parallels to the events of Genesis 6 also come to mind with these comparisons. Truthfully, we just don't have the time to navigate the factual and historical truth from what has become the haven of conspiracy theorists and many internet nuts that you can find on the web today. But perhaps the best way to frame your thoughts as we move into our text tonight is just to show you a slide from the Lexham Bible Dictionary on the meaning of Babylon. Check this out. Babylon, the gate of gods. Definition, meaning the gate of gods. That's going to become very important later in our study. Specifically in the Akkadian language. So in their own language, this is what it means to them. This is why people make the connections that they do between Genesis 6 and Babylon. We're not going to do that tonight. We just want you to understand where it comes from. It's not uncommon for an eschatology teacher to spend two hours talking about things the Bible doesn't say. to help draw connections for you about the very few things they can point to that the Bible does say. And we didn't want to do that. I want to encourage you that the best way to understand the Bible is to actually read it and quote from it. Yeah. So as we pick up in our text tonight, God has... 
even as they are used as a tool to achieve his purposes, like a servant that is utilized to discipline a son. Mm. This, is, this was expressed through Jeremiah's contemporary Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk 1, 6 through 12. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Not nice people. <laughs> they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Not good people. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. Not nice people. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps to capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose strength is their God. Little G. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Notice what this, some, some key passages or uh, phrases in this passage. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They are guilty people who is strength, whose strength is in their God. Little G. These phrases are not usually what you would think of to describe a tool in the hand of God. And yet Habakkuk said, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. That's a revelation there. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish because they were a tool in the hand of God. Yeah. Habakkuk even goes on to speak extensively about Babylon's coming judgment after their time of utilization. This is Habakkuk 2, verse 16. Yeah. So coming off what Mr. Parsons just said, whose own strength is their God. God was able to utilize them as a tool, but he also forecast what he will do with that tool in Habakkuk 2, verse 16. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. Guys, for some solid commentary on Habakkuk's words about Babylon, I think we should check out Revelation 14, 8 through 10. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. When you think of Babylon and think of the stories in the book of Daniel, where people are made to worship an image, but Daniel and the three Hebrew yeah. children didn't, this, this imagery is intentional. Habakkuk tells us that Babylon is going to have to drink from a cup that comes from the Lord's hand 
And Revelation tells us that she polluted the whole world with a cup of adulteries that came from her hand. You can see that Babylon made others drink a cup. And now she and all who take her mark will drink the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. Next time you see somebody going on endlessly about numerology and why Nero must be the Antichrist, they have divorced the Bible from its Jewish context, and so they cannot understand it. This imagery builds in the Bible all the way from Genesis 10 through the book of Revelation. In other words, from the beginning to the end. The imagery even repeats sporadically throughout the book of Revelation. So Revelation 16, 19, it says, The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. You see, Babylon caused others to drink, and now God is remembering and causing her to drink the same cup. You see, Isaiah even before Habakkuk, also predicted that Babylon would be used as a tool in the hand of God and afterwards would be punished after it was used as the tool. This is Isaiah 13, 19 through 21. Listen to Isaiah's prediction. And remember, Isaiah came before Habakkuk and certainly before Jeremiah on this timeline. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Come on. Not just a normal kind of overthrow, but like Sodom and Gomorrah, the kind of desolation that happened there. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. That's important to note that the prediction includes no more inhabitants in Babylon. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flocks, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Isaiah actually goes on to say that the Medes will conquer Babylon, but the imagery extends way beyond that specific event to a time period when no nomads, no shepherds, Nobody will ever inhabit Babylon ever again. We're not talking specifically about when the Medes conquered Babylon here. There's more to this story than what meets the eye. Specifically, it says not even a nomad will live there. Understand what a nomad is. We're not talking about a permanent settlement. We're, we're talking about nobody's even going to pitch a tent there. Yeah. Say that three times fast. Nailed <laughs> it. Our position tonight, we promise is going to become abundantly clear as we continue. But we wanted to let you know at this point that this specific prophecy in Isaiah, as well as the events that Jeremiah 50 and 51 are talking about, find their fulfillment in Revelation. This is Revelation 18, verse 2. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Revelation 18 is the final outcome for Babylon. I like to call this Bye Bye Babylon. <laughs> I'm going to hand this over to Judah here. All right. Now, finally, 
Just because it's fun before we get into our text. Y'all like to have fun on Monday nights? Yeah. This one's fun. Okay. Daniel has an encounter with Belteshazzar after he misused the articles of Adonai's temple. You will remember that Belteshazzar saw what looked like fingers on a human hand writing a message on the wall that the Babylonians were unable to read. The message is interpreted by Daniel to be about the fall of Babylon. Which finger did he use to write it? <laughs> uh, that's not in the text. We'll just leave that to your imagination. Danny, many tackle Parsons. Maybe he can explain. <laughs> now, although it's unusual for us, we yeah. think the King James captures the essence of the language. Yes, the august King James. The poetic King yes, James. Yes. The universal King James. <laughs> Even the mood that is being described in the event. Belteshazzar, as king of Babylon, represents what will come on the spiritual powers of Babylon, or mystery Babylon. We get a slide. Mr. Stevens, oh. would you mind reading that one aloud for me? I mean, you're right next to the microphone. Just help your older brother out. The king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosened, and his knees smote against one another. Now, since while you're trying to envision the joints of Belteshazzar's loins being loosened, it's time to remind you of the parable that has served us so well since Jeremiah chapter 24. There was a great king with his firstborn son and many servants. The king became displeased that his firstborn son and his servants were disobedient. So the king takes one of the servants and commands the servant to spank his firstborn son. After the son is corrected, the great king then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in a specific order and saves the one who spanked his firstborn son for last. So the last servant to be disciplined is Babylon who ironically is introduced into the biblical narrative prior to the announcement of Israel and finds the spiritual entity coming to a total destruction in the culmination of the biblical narrative at the end of the book of Revelation, yeah. specifically chapter 18. So think about these nations that have been addressed in this next slide. Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and we have finally come to the tenth nation. That might help you when you're trying to figure out what ten horns are. That might help you when you're thinking about the imagery in the book of Revelation. Tonight, we're going to read through the 50th chapter, as we've said. We want to pray that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened as we do. Amen. Revelation is one of those topics that everybody has strong feelings about, and almost no one is educated on the subject. So we would like to anchor the things that we're saying in the text and not simply try to use the text to say what we would like it to say to support a pre-canned view. We're actually praying and determining all day long what we feel safe to share with you and what we don't. Yeah. Most of tonight will simply be things that we observed in the text that are 
completely parallel in both places. And we'll let you draw some conclusions from that and others we will nudge you in the right direction. Which man of God would like to pray? Father, we have come here tonight to hear from you, Lord. Father, we're asking right now that you would receive our ears to hear rightly, Lord. That that our hearts have been turned to fear of you, God. That we would hear your commands and we would follow them always, Lord. That we want to see with eyes that have come from you, Lord. That we would know that this is your direction. This is you leading us, God. Lord, that we would throw off everything that we have held on to before to hear this revelation from you tonight. God, we thank you. So, Brother Linton, you'll pick up in verse 1 and just read until Justin stops you. This is the word of, this is the, word the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured. Baal will be put to shame. Marduk will be filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. All right, so like so many of these prophecies, the description begins with the statement of judgment on the very real archon mm. that is present in Babylon. Yeah. The archon, Bel, is a contracted form of the Hebrew word Baal, or Baal, not Baal. It's like he got the joints of his loins loose. <laughs> he had a problem in the ball. Now that word Baal and Marduk should be thought of in this case as two names for the chief god of Babylon. And in this passage, he is being filled with terror. This very real archon is being filled with terror at what God is going to do in this geographical or spiritual region. When you're thinking about the archon, resist the urge to try to name everything that you can about it from a Wikipedia article. And just go back to the introduction. The first worldwide rebellion after the flood, the center of the kingdom was Babylon. And now whatever spiritual power is over that area, according to Psalm 82, is filled with terror. Yeah. That in itself is gripping, isn't it? Yeah. Verse 3 lists, a nation from the north will attack her and lay waste. We wanted to slow down a little bit and break verse 3 down for you because there are three very important predictors in verse 3 that specifically speak to the coming judgment of Babylon. We have a slide for this. The first one is that it will be from a nation to their north. So specifically, a nation to their north is going to come and destroy. Secondly, we know that no one will live in Babylon after this coming judgment comes and occurs. That's also a very important observation. The third one from verse 3 is that both men and animals will all flee Babylon. Now there's another factor that's going to come into play in our next uh, verse, in verse 4 and 5. But just these three give us a time frame and a perspective about what Babylon is going to look like at the coming judgment. Do you guys remember that when somebody attacks Israel, it is always from the north? Yeah. Do you remember why that is? It's because of the geography of Israel. 
So when you read that Jews have some kind of mystical problem with the north, when you, when you hear what sounds almost superstitious, that's a misunderstanding of the geography that always brings an invasion from the north. Do you know who we're not talking about tonight? We're not talking about Israel or its geography in an invasion from the north. We're talking about Babylon being invaded from the north. And they do not have that geographical issue. There's no reason to read this as anything other than a nation from the north. from the east but from the north also no one will live in Babylon afterwards not even a nomad dwelling in a tent also men and animals will all flee Babylon and in those days at that time an everlasting covenant that you know as the newer covenant will be put into effect come on Any clear understanding of this slide 
means that the newer covenant, it may have been announced and the process initiated, but it reveals that that newer covenant has not yet reached its actual culmination or enactment on Mm. earth. Let that settle on you for a minute. Because this is an area that needs to be cleared up among the biblically literate Christian community. All biblical indicators point to the completion of the newer covenant as occurring in the time of Mystery Babylon's ultimate destruction. I want to give you four reasons that we are sure that Babylon's destruction described by Jeremiah has not yet occurred. The prophecy has elements in it that could not have been fulfilled at any point in history. First, the Medes and Persian Empire were located to the east of Babylon, not the north. Second, and this is huge, the city was not laid waste or left uninhabited. In fact, Daniel stayed and served in the governments of the Medes and the Persians. It specifically says 120 officials did the same when you read Daniel 5.30 through 6.3. So that's not uninhabited and that's not destroyed. Third, no one fled the city when it fell to the Medes and Persians. Most of the book of Daniel attests to that. How can you read Daniel 5 through 9 and come to the conclusion that Babylon has fallen in the way that Jeremiah described it? Fourth, and this is the one I hope you really get. The new covenant was not enacted or completed during the Medo-Persian Empire. It wasn't even completed in the first century. Now, while there is undoubtedly a mixing of present and future events in these chapters of prophecy. You can see some things that were fulfilled or initiated in the days immediately after Jeremiah, but you don't see everything fulfilled. In fact, their ultimate fulfillment is aimed in a book of the newer covenant called Revelation and specifically chapters 17, 18, and 19. Are you guys feeling the tension of Jeremiah's prophecies? Could you imagine being in the first century, reading Jeremiah and going, hey, when is this going to happen? And then a man is on the island of Patmos and he pens this in Revelation 18, 21 through 19, verse 9. While Justin's preparing to read that, we've just thrown something at you that you, you may not appreciate quite for what it is. It was all done at the cross is not true. It has never been true. This is the kind of shortcut preaching that has led generations into biblical ignorance. Well, the ministry of Jesus did it all, not even close. He announced something that he would complete, and that is going to become clear to you tonight. And it really helps to clear up why the book of Revelation exists. Yeah. A whole nation was waiting for these things to actually happen, and they still have not. So you've heard how Jeremiah 50 is aiming at these things. Listen to Revelation 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone 
and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of the harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. It sounds like it's still mostly inhabited though, right? (laughs) In fact, if you Wikipedia Babylon, there are people living there today. Saddam Hussein wanted to make it a UNESCO site. (laughs) I voted for the Tower of Borsippa being uh, the capital of uh, Iraq, but uh, whatever. Continuing on, your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Moving on to chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is immediately after the destruction. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We're not seeing that today, are we? The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Amen. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And don't miss it. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And in case you didn't know it, Abambola, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. He likes to wear white shirts. Then the angel said to him, said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So the culmination of the newer covenant does not actually occur until mystery Babylon is fallen. Those two things have to happen together. We don't have a wedding until Babylon has fallen. That is when the wedding of the Lamb arrives. We need to familiarize ourselves with this concept so that you will appreciate the difference between betrothal and the consummation of the ages. See, what we've seen already is a betrothal, but we have not seen a consummation yet. Let's talk about this time of betrothal for a moment. Time of betrothal is a time specifically for the saints to prepare. Yeah. Specifically for the saints of God to have patient endurance. Patient endurance that continues on until that wedding supper of the Lamb. This is so that we, as the body of Christ, 
can take on the character of the groom and so that we're made ready to join with him in eternal marriage. Pastor Nick, I can't imagine why anybody would be tempted then to want to skip this period and say that it's already happened. Yeah, if, if we credit ourselves with everything happening at the cross, then that means we don't need patient endurance. We don't need to be prepared. We we're already married. We're good. We are secure. No, this time of betrothal is a time of work for the body of Christ. Yes. Luke 22, verse 14 says this in a beautiful way. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Wow. Do we have fulfillment in the kingdom of God yet? No. No. Look at verse 17. <laughs> After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we're in this betrothal period, church, and our wedding to the Lamb comes after he destroys Mystery Babylon and establishes the literal government of God on the earth. Come on. Not even the original apostles have experienced this yet. You will certainly not precede them in this experience. As, the, as Hebrews says, only together with them Say with them. With, with them. them. With them will you experience this, and it is yet in our future. Yeah. The chief marker of this event, historically speaking, is and always has been the fall of Babylon. Okay. As Linton picks up again in the sixth verse, I want you to understand that that ought to straighten out lots of eschatological problems. Yeah. This is not just about when an abomination of desolation occurs. This is not just about when the book of Revelation was written. Babylon did not fall. And the wedding of the Lamb has not happened. Not in the first century, not in the 1980s, not at any other time. It simply hasn't occurred. Jeremiah will straighten this out for us. And it is more than a template for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is Jeremiah expanded. Yeah. Let's move on to verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. The enemy said, We are not guilty, for they sinned against the Lord, their true pastor, the Lord. Man, I'm glad that it was just the Babylonians that have accepted such a lot. <laughs> you hear these words? They devoured them. Their enemy said, we are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord. Saints, we don't have time to cover all of the historical record, but almost every mass execution of Jews from the time of Christ to this day has been justified in the same way. Like most lies that the enemy tells, that are born of that adversary. This is a half-truth. Israel did sin against the Lord, but that does not mean that Babylon is not guilty 
for what they did. Yeah. Just like your little brother being guilty doesn't make you innocent for punching him in the face. Right. Amen to that. The Bible constantly and consistently portrays Israel as the Lord's flock or sheep. They are corrected by him, and he himself shepherds them. I'm going to read to you out of a section in Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. Come on. Wait, wait, wait. None will be missing? But how can we know where they are? Nations have moved so much. How could you ever identify? Do you really don't? You don't think the Lord can identify his own sheep? Come on. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And... Israel will live in safety. Wow. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all of the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. All right, so let's pick some of this up. Okay, number one, it's occurring in Jeremiah's prophecy. So Jeremiah probably wasn't talking about Norwegians who thought they were spiritual Jews. You can clearly see that it says no Israelite will be missing. Judah and Israel must live in safety under the Lord their righteousness. And, to cap it all off, it must occur in the land of Israel. (laughs) When these events happen, they will exceed the notoriety of the first exodus so that in Israel it will not be mentioned anymore. Clearly, this has not happened for Israel yet. Let us not buy into blame-shifting Babylonian lies from Jeremiah 50 and verse 7 that says Babylon is not guilty because Israel sinned. The Lord, their righteousness, has promised to cure their sin and cause Babylon to fall. This is what the culmination of the ages is actually about and it clearly hasn't happened yet. All right, another one. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. 
I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Bring anything to mind? I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Again, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel places Israel's salvation following the day of clouds and darkness in that second Exodus imagery that we have been learning about. Again, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel places the location of Israel's salvation within their national geographic borders on the mountains of Israel. Cannot take place anywhere else. Again, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel emphasizes the curing of Israel's condition physically, morally, and spiritually. Amen. If you slide down a few verses in Ezekiel 34... And go to verse 23. We have a few more details about this redemption and retribution that is still yet to occur. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. Come on. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel here names the son of David that will accomplish these things as the shepherd that is the Lord God among them. Man, that's good. Understand that we are in a period of betrothal right now. And this period precedes the culmination of the ages that happens at the wedding of the Lamb. You know that the wedding of the Lamb is about to occur When you see that Mystery mystery Babylon is falling, then the wedding becomes imminent. The Newer Testament passages that you've become so familiar with should be reread in light of this imagery that we're talking about with the proper Israeli context. Let's look at Matthew 10, verse 6. It's very short, but it says, Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So the lost sheep that the son of David is gathering are from what nation? Israel. Israel. By the way, when Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray, the we referred to he and his fellow Israelites. Yeah. Our point is that the promise to cure Israel's backsliding has always been forecasted in the word. The blame-shifting Babylonian lie from Jeremiah 50 verse 7 says that because Israel sinned, Babylon's not guilty. The betrothal period cures Israel's backsliding and prepares her for the culmination of the newer covenant, which is the wedding of the Lamb and national salvation oh, come on. for Israel. Amen. It's kind of like thinking that because you put somebody else's wedding on your calendar, that it's as good as the wedding having occurred already. And you miss the fact that it wasn't about you at all. You were just invited to be a part of it. 
familiar passage in Matthew 25, 32 to 33. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. You don't want to be a goat then, Judah. No, <laughs> I sure want to be a goat ever. Gentiles, somebody raise your hand for me. That's me. Us are quick to point out that we are sheep too. Me too! <laughs> As illustrated before, it is true the nations are being gathered, but not without the actual subject of the wedding. This is only true along with Israel and cannot be true without her. As the progression of events in Matthew starts with Matthew 24, which is the passage that everybody is familiar with about the end of age. We have the abomination of Je desolation coming. But what city is he coming to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the time of great tribulation occurring, or Jacob's trouble that is about Israel. As you begin in Matthew 25, we're describing virgins that are waiting for a wedding that is to the son of David. Yeah. Israeli virgins. Yeah. Matthew 25 takes place after the time period that marks the fall of Babylon. Guys, we cannot assume that we can attend their wedding with their groom in their setting without going through the same purification process that all Israel can, will, and must. Guys, that would be foolish. We won't make that mistake. should also take note that the definition of Gentile sheep in Matthew 25 directly relates to how you treated his people, how we respond to him. You'll see that in Matthew 25, 40. You ready for it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Matthew 25, 40. The king will reply, truly I tell you, except those of you more spiritual than me that can have a different understanding of what I'm actually saying. No, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of, wow, catch this, these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I want to warn you, church, do not elevate the sowed interpretation of this verse beyond its pushat meaning. At least one of the criteria for your inclusion into the flock of God is directly related to how you treated the physical, genetic brothers and sisters of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jewish people. That's clear as day in this verse. Listen to John 10, 11 with this sheep homiletic in mind. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We all read that and we think he's talking about us. But listen, the son of David lays down his life for his sheep, the Jewish people. Right. Yeah. It is about them first. Hey, how do we know that? Because Jeremiah 50 calls them sheep. Yeah. Because Ezekiel 34 calls them sheep. Because Jeremiah 23 calls them sheep. He does not refer to North America as his sheep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. We're his sheep too. Yes, with them, but never without them. These prophecies are about them. Yeah. Now listen to it again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His sheep, Justin. The truth is, is if you want to marry this good shepherd, 
Do you want to marry this good shepherd? Yes. Well, then you're going to have to take on this characteristic of this groom. You're going to have to learn how to lay down your life for his sheep as well, the Jewish people. Listen to John 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So in this passage, just like the other ones, we cannot make the mistake of elevating the sowed level of interpretation beyond its very peshat meaning. Yeah. In the context of the first century, when Jesus is speaking during that time, where he is within Israel, the sheep are absolutely the Jewish people first and foremost. It's the Jewish people that cannot be snatched away from the good shepherd. How many horrible interpretations in light of that shot meaning have you heard about this verse? Yeah. Oh, I'm a sheep and nobody can snatch me from the hand of God and my salvation is eternal. And just because I made a decision 10 years ago, I can never lose my salvation. Nope. That is not the meaning of this passage. It's first and foremost to the sheep of Israel. Amen. Listen to John 21 verse 16. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep, my sheep. Listen, this takes place at least 10 years before there was such thing as Gentile sheep. Yeah. This should be a revelation. We have an opportunity to be built up with the blessed bride that is Israel. Yeah. And I suppose the alternative is to join with burning Babylon, but we don't want to do that. <laughs> the overwhelming conclusion is that Jesus was speaking about Israeli sheep in the first and foremost fashion. Peter, after all, was the apostle called to who? The, the Jews. Jews. I think it's best that we read you a passage from a little-known book called Hebrews. Oh, I'm sorry. Who are those people in Hebrews? <laughs> must have meant the Greeks. Yeah, probably. No, it's called Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, wow. equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not only should you desire this equipping, but also you should know that Jesus is the great shepherd of the Jewish sheep, and he is betrothed to the collective nation. He will defeat Mystery Babylon and marry that Jewish nation. You are included in that process, but you are also are only betrothed. And the wedding will not occur without the Jewish bride and the fall of Babylon. What, yeah, I want you to think through this, okay? Because you can hear this and think, like, oh, no, I, I knew that. I promise you didn't. And I promise that you didn't because we've missed something. The first seven verses of Jeremiah 50 are about the end of the age. They're about the fall of Babylon. And they're about marriage to the Jewish people. That in and of itself means that they cannot be homogenous with every other nation. Yeah. That in and of itself means that you cannot simply say, well, I'm a Jew inwardly. Right. 
because Jeremiah didn't have that in view. The, the author of the book and the audience of the book didn't have that in view. I'm sure that Peter would have loved you and considered you a sheep of God. And yet, when Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, Peter could have no concept that that could apply to you at all. Yeah. It was a mystery that was revealed to Paul later. Right. The context of the word sheep in the Newer Testament may be applied to a Gentile, but it first and foremost is applied to the nation of God. Even when we read in John 10, I have sheep that are not of this fold also. He's probably talking about Samaritans. Okay, let's pick up then in verse 8. Flee out of Babylon. Leave the land of the Babylonians and be like the goats that, that lead the flock. Look, Revelation 18, 1 through 6 actually contains these words. Remember, the admonition is coming from Jeremiah about the coming judgment on Babylon, and his prophecy speaks to all Israelis through all generations until every word is fulfilled. And the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John is echoing it and magnifying it and emphasizing it. But the, the historic truth is it's written to Israel. With that in mind, listen to this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by a splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen! Is Babylon the great? She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations, Gentile peoples, have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Look, if it is not abundantly clear yet, John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ straight out of the book of Jeremiah. You could not understand one without the other. Eliminating the Jewish context destroys all ability to understand the book. So throwing out Jeremiah and just going straight to Revelation doesn't work. Throwing away Revelation and trying to just read Jeremiah doesn't work. How many of you, when you became Christians in the first six months, picked up the book of Revelation? Yeah. Be honest now. Some of you already told me that you have and your hands are not up. So I'm not going to call you out, but that happens Sunday. You cannot, you cannot understand the book of Revelation if you have not even read the book of Jeremiah. The basic concept being driven home is that Babylon was used as a tool in the hand of God to discipline, refine, and purify his nation. But Babylon will be judged for their treatment of the Jewish people. The theme, come out of her, my people, 
is applicable to all men, but none more than Israel. God wants them out of there before he judges that great harlot. Moving on to verse 9. Well, I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations. Okay, okay. I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations. An alliance of nations here is being predicted as attacking Babylon. Yeah. I want to make sure that you guys get that before we finish verse 9. From the land of the north, they will take up their positions against her. And from the north, she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not retire against the enemy. Oh, come on. So let's talk about the, Me the Medo-Persian Empire for a moment. <clears throat> they did not attack Babylon from the north. It did not happen that way. And you also could not rightly characterize them by an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. No. The geography doesn't work. The populace of those nations doesn't work. It's not an alliance of great nations. In your own time, though, if you were curious about this topic, you would open up to Daniel and you'd read through Daniel 9, Daniel 10, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12 for more revelation on this subject. We believe that you will come to see Jeremiah as forecasting events. Maybe forecasting the events here of Revelation 17, verse 16. The beast and the ten horns. Sounds like a potential alliance of great nations. You saw will hate the prostitute. Interesting. Like Mystery Babylon. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Come on. Wow. Let's continue in verse 10 and 11. So Babylonia will be plundered. All who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. Because you rejoice and are glad, you who pillage my inheritance, because you frolic like a heifer threshing Ooh. grain. You gotta watch out for those frolicking heifers! <laughs> <laughs> To be the people of his inheritance 
as you are now. They had a hot date with God in Egypt. Israel is not trying to be the inheritance of the Lord. They already are. They're just being purified. This will happen in the events and the trying times that lead up to a second Exodus event. And it must surpass the first Exodus event so that it's never mentioned again. This will happen when Babylon the Great has fallen and the marriage of the Lamb occurs in the consummation of the ages when Jesus Christ marries the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 9.26 says, I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. See, the good shepherd did not destroy Israel. He has not destroyed Israel, and he will not destroy Israel at all. Rather, he will purify, refine, and restore Israel. Possibly a few of us previously goat-worshipping Gentiles, too. Especially if we refuse the urge to redefine or replace the people he calls his inheritance. You know, we could go on this like this forever. Deuteronomy 9.29, Deuteronomy 32.9, Psalm 33.12, and the entire book of Psalm 89. But I think we're just going to read one more just because we can. Yeah, we've got to have one more on this, Justin. Psalm 28, (laughs) verse 9. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Amen. Short Sweet verse, but very impactful and powerful. We have a slide of these four items. Save your people. Bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd. And number four, carry them forever. Church, this is wedding language. Come on. This is betrothal language. Looking forward to the actual wedding supper of the Lamb. And this is a promise of Israel's king to his inheritance the nation of Israel. He will literally carry. Say carry. Carry. Which is, is the word used in Hebrew for the wedding. Wow. He will carry his bride wow. across the threshold. Yeah, he will. Wow. Wow. Let's pick up in verse 12. Your mother. Your mother. Your mama! Your mother. It's like it's like Babylon's mama found out she's a whore. <laughs> In fact, she's the mother of all whores. Because of the Lord's anger, she will not be inhabited, but she will be completely desolate. All who pass Babylon will be horrified and scoffed because of all her wounds. Not inhabited. Completely desolate. This passage cannot find its fulfillment in the events of the 5th century B.C. because Babylon remained for centuries after it. Remember that we discussed Daniel living under the Medes and the Persians? In fact, Alexander the Great even intended to build his capital there before he died. Mm. This verse should be understood in light of the events in Revelation 17 through 19 and the fall of Babylon the Great prior to the wedding of the Lamb. Jeremiah is clearly expressing the same ignominy that Babylon will bear. 
So does, so does Revelation 17. This is Revelation 17, verse 5. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother mm. of prostitutes yep. and the abomination of the earth. You can wow. hear Babylon's mama going, she was the prostitute, not the mother. <laughs> She's the mother of all prostitutes. Her mother was not a prostitute. <laughs> It's an astounding discovery that uh, John's fat mom jokes are biblical. Well, we get verse 14. That's pretty Take up your positions around Babylon. All you who draw the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrow. For she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her on every side. She surrenders. Her towers fall. Her walls are torn down. Since this is the vengeance of the Lord, Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done to others. Now, saints, as we go through this next series of scripture, remember the words. Do to her as she has done to others. I'm going to pick up reading in Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 43. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I wounded and I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. I will lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasp it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, and he will avenge the blood of his servants. Amen. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Land and people. Vengeance on Babylon is accompanied by the atonement for the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Amen. This is the concept of a kinsman redeemer. We're going to develop this for you, but it's a lot more multifaceted than what you've been told in the past. Yeah. We focus on the redeeming role of the kinsman. But biblically speaking, the kinsman had an equal commitment to vengeance, redeeming his people and dealing out vengeance. Christians, Christians tend to understand the role of Boaz as a redeemer of Ruth. But you need to understand that the same exact Hebrew word is also an avenger who repays for wrongs that were done to his next of kin. Yeah. We have a slide for you. That's good. On this slide, you will see a goel. That word can be translated to redeem or to avenge. And it's not either or. It's always and and both. You see the highlighted portion at the bottom? Thus, the kinsman redeemer, also called a goel, was responsible for preserving the integrity, life, property, and family name yeah. of his close relative for executing ju judge justice upon his murderer. Wow. Now, we could probably teach all night on this, but as Judah has already said, we love the story of Boaz because, wow, he saves. What you miss in this is that reading Numbers 35 will teach you that is not his only role. He's also to defend her with his life. He's also to take vengeance on anybody who would try to take her life. Come on. A kinsman redeemer both avenges 
and redeems, which is what you're seeing in the book of Revelation. In eschatology, we've seen the presentation of the Redeemer. But we will see the presentation of the Avenger. Wow. And they're the same man. Amen. The word is Goel. In fact, you're going to see it several times in Jeremiah 50, translated as Redeemer, when in fact it's Redeemer slash Avenger. Jesus is the Savior and the Avenger of Israel. By the way, Marvel Comics stole that entire concept. <laughs> and it was two Jewish men who did it. You see in the definition that he does this for the family name of his close relative? Who's the family name of Jesus, church? Look, listen to Psalm 149, verse 6 through 9. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. What? Come on. It is glory when the Goel does his job, yes. which is saving and avenging. Look, Christian traditions of pacifism. Boo. Yeah. Boo. Boo. Did you say pansyism? <laughs> I said pusillanimousism. <laughs> Christian traditions of pacifism have falsely construed the nature of our God. He is an avenger. He takes vengeance for his family as well as redeems them. It is to the glory of the saints that our God is the avenger of his people as well as their savior. You will see this as we progress through the Bible, that this is a New Testament theme as well as an Older Testament theme. The New Testament is not just a book of love and hope, and the Older Testament is a book of judgment. No, this carries through. So Isaiah 35, 3-4, we are going to see this concept at play in the Older Testament prophet. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Now, how many have heard this scripture before? Okay, almost everybody in the room. In light of this concept of Goel, listen to what comes next. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. You have vengeance and salvation in the same breath in this passage. Vengeance on Babylon will precede the salvation of God's people. The Older and Newer Testaments both hold this to be true. Jesus announced the initiation of the Newer Covenant. That's why he said, you've now come into the year of the Lord's favor. But the culmination of the covenant does not occur until he has taken vengeance on Babylon and he has saved his people with everlasting salvation. Amen. Yeah. Once you start to see this in the scripture, you can't unsee it and you'll yeah. find it everywhere you look. Listen to Isaiah 59, 17 through 20. He put on righteousness as a breastplate yes. and the helmet of salvation on his head. Yes. Listen to what comes next. He put on the garments of vengeance, wow. and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done 
foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come. The Goel! The Goel! To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Listen, these two concepts are married together in the scripture. Debak, you could say. Vengeance on Babylon will precede the ultimate salvation of God's people, Israel. Guys, we told you at the beginning of the stream to remember the words, do to her as she has done to others. And you just heard it from Peyton's mouth in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 is another familiar passage that you may never read the same. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Yeah. Yeah. And how many times have you heard that at an outreach to the yeah. homeless? It's sweet. Good news. If it's not clear at this point that he's speaking about the poor of Israel, I don't know what would make it clear. <laughs> he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives who've been taken into captivity right. and released from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. Woo! Stop right there. And Come that's on. the end of the verse, right? Right. It's where Jesus stopped. It's almost as if he expected us to know the context. And the day of vengeance of our God. Come on. You know that Jesus read this very passage in his own hometown. But he stopped in the middle of the sentence. The newer covenant initiation is about favor for Israel. But its culmination, the culmination of ages, it is about vengeance on Babylon and the ultimate permanent salvation of Israel with no more adversaries on the table. Amen. The downfall of Babylon and the newer covenant salvation are seen together in Scripture. I'm being somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Jesus didn't just stop in the middle of the sentence which he did, he also stopped in the middle of his Goel work. And it must be completed. And it's for Israel. Isaiah 63, 4 puts them together. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And the year of my redemption has come. At this point, you can't miss the correlation between vengeance on Babylon and the time of Israel's ultimate redemption. But let's look at a few newer Testament passages. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. Man, that's a good word. But leave room for God's wrath. What? For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. The Jewish apostles understood this and admonished the church to leave room for God's wrath. Because they knew a goel was coming. The book of Revelation is the ultimate picture of the Goel who comes to avenge and save. You ready to come full circle? Yeah. All the way back to Jeremiah 50? Yeah. Awesome. We're going to make a correlation for you tonight from Revelation 18, verse 6. It says, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. So to say that Revelation 
is similar to the book of Jeremiah, kind of misses the mark. Yeah. It falls dramatically short of the truth. The truth is, is that Revelation actually is an expansion of the book of Jeremiah. Yeah. So Jeremiah recorded the words, do to her as she has done to others. And we told you guys to remember that at the beginning of the string. Revelation says, give back to her as she has given. Same exact kind of phrasing and language here. Yeah. This is a large part of the redemption story, but it's almost never told. And you guys are getting to hear it tonight. Yes. This is the other half of the redemption of Israel. Does it surprise you that the spirit of Babylon would try to influence the church to say that this is only about being saved? <laughs> hey, what's verse 16? Trying to hedge their bets. off of Babylon the sower and the reaper with his sickle harvest. Because of the sword of the oppressor, let everyone return to his own people. Let everyone flee to his own land. Israel is a scattered flock. Let lions seen, never been observed? When in Israel's history could you search throughout the land and find no guilt? Guys, this has not happened. This is an image of Revelation 18 and 19. That after vengeance on Babylon, the newer covenant, which is the culmination, it is for the bride that is Israel, when she will be dressed in spotless, flawless, Sinless garments Come of white on, that were prepared for her. I stay on this retribution and redemption tone. You will see this throughout the word, and it is viewed as the final climactic end to all of the biblical story. Yes. Have y'all noticed regularly that he doesn't just say pay back to her as she's done, but pay her back double? Yeah. Y'all get that? Yeah. You're about to find out why. I mean, unless y'all would like to wrap it up now. No! Well, let's pick up in verse 21. Attack the land of Marathaim. Yes. And those who live in Pekah. Yeah. Pursue, kill, and completely destroy them, declares the Lord. Do everything I have commanded you. Now, how many of you know where Marathim is? None. How many of you know where Pekah is? None. How many of you know what they mean in the original languages? Also, none. I, I get it. This is difficult for us. We're foreigners to this book. 
So we made a slide for you. Using two word plays, God ordered the attack on the land of Marathim and on the people of Pakad. Marathim was the region of Mat Maritim in southern Babylon, where the Tigris and the Euphrates River enter the Persian Gulf. However, the word in Hebrew, Maritim, means double rebellion. Pakad referred to an Aramean tribe, Pekuda, in the south, southern Babylon on the east bank of the Tigris River. But the word in Hebrew, Pekod, means to punish or punishment. Wow. Thus, God was saying he would attack the land of double rebellion and inflict his punishment on it. Wow. I wonder how they wrote the book of Revelation. It was a man that had a deep revelation into the role of Jesus Christ based on reading the book of Jeremiah. Let's pick up in verse 22. The noise of battle is in the land, the noise of great destruction. How broken and shattered is the hammer of the whole earth. How it's a bad day when your ha hammer is shattered. Yeah. Yeah. How desolate is Babylon among the nations. All right, notice that Babylon has been used as a hammer in the hands of God to chasten Israel, as well as the other disobedient service servants in his house. Did you, did you hear where it says he's the hammer of the whole earth? Yeah. And yet, because of Babylon's pride and rejoicing over the destruction of God's inheritance, God promises to Babylon in full view of the nations that Babylon will be shattered in full view of the whole earth. All right, y'all rouse yourselves. Shake yourselves, because what's coming is very good. Yes. And, and we have untold hours of study into this, so you, you can be sharp for 32 minutes, huh? Might even spot us a minute or two if we need it, right? Yeah. I mean, after all, we came on time today. I set a trap for you, O Babylon. What? And you were caught before you knew it. You were found and captured because you opposed the Lord. The Lord has opened his arsenal and brought out the weapons of his wrath. For the sovereign Lord Almighty has work to do in the land of the Babylonians. Oh, man. He's got he work, got to, work do. to do. That is some excellent language right there in New verse work, 24 baby. and 25. Tonight we're covering a lot of different subjects and a lot of material. But you may remember where we started tonight talking to you guys about Nimrod and kind of laying a foundation in Babylon for you. Nimrod was called a mighty hunter or a mighty warrior in the face of the Lord. So in verse 24 and 25, look at the imagery that the Lord is speaking to the Babylonians. It says, the Lord set a trap in verse 24, like a hunter. He set a trap like a hunter in verse 24. Oh, it gets better. In verse 25, the Lord opened his arsenal. Like a warrior, he opened up his arsenal. This is an incredible humor that the Lord is using in these passages. He is actually looking at this Nimrod kind of spirit, and he's taunting it. He's taunting Babylon. He's saying, hey, mighty hunter, mighty warrior, in the face of God, the sovereign Lord Almighty has work to do on you. In your face! I'm going to do some work in your face! This may cause you to read 
Romans 9 differently. This is Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, <laughs> bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Oh, yeah. Starting to get clear? Yeah. Whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, who he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Amen. This would mean that from Genesis 10 to Revelation 19, God was demonstrating his patience so that Israel could be prepared for glory. Yeah. Come on. But he still planned to do some work on Nimrod's face. Come on. Yeah. Let's go ahead. Come on, y'all. That's good. Verse 26. Come against her from afar. Break open her grannies. Plow her up like heaps of grain. Not break open her grannies. Break open her granaries. Plow her up like heaps of grain. Completely destroy her and leave her no remnant. Guys, even the dawn had a remnant of widows and orphans. Not Babylon. Not Babylon. The heavenly can... A retribution is getting oh. opened. Come on, yeah. now. open it up. The Lord's fullest extent of his arsenal, which might be better described as a case, is being poured out. <laughs> Some might it. say a keg. <laughs> Got God's heavenly six pack. <laughs> and you get the impression that it's been a long, long time in coming. <laughs> Perhaps since Genesis 10. By the way, when this happens, all of heaven is going to rejoice, and you'll see this in Revelation 18 and 19 when he finally opens up all of that arsenal. Now, on this subject, let's get verse 27 and 28. Kill all her young bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come. The time for them to be punished. Listen to the fugitives and refugees from Babylon, declaring in Zion, how the Lord our God has taken vengeance, vengeance for his temple. Now, I know when you hear the word refugees and fugitives, because of its proximity to Babylon, you might think they're Babylonian. These fugitives and refugees from Babylon are the group spoken of in Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people. They are likely Jews that have returned to Zion and are testifying about God opening up a can <laughs> of vengeance on Babylon. The Hebrew words refer to survivors that agree with God's vengeance on Babylon, and they are presented as giving their testimony. God will have a remnant from every nation before his throne, according to Revelation 5, and according to Revelation 7. This would certainly include Babylonians from a historical sense, but the events that Jeremiah is describing go way beyond his present-day Babylonians, and they address those that are in mystery Babylon. If you want to try to understand what I'm saying, simply read Revelation 14, 11, and ask yourself a question. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. 
while there will be a remnant from every nation, do you know what there will not be a remnant of? People who took Babylon's mark. There will be no remnant of them. 29. Some of the archers against Babylon, all those who draw the bow, encamp all around her. Let no one escape. Repay her for her deeds. Do to her as she has done. For she has defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The next time you read through Revelation 17 and 18, this same tone is inescapable. For she has defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You see that woven all yep. the way through Revelation in 17 and 18. Brazen. That the whore of Babylon, they're brazen. They're defying the Lord to his face. Verse 30. Therefore, her young men will fall in the street. All her soldiers will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. See, I am against you, O arrogant one. Oh, oh what? One. O arrogant one, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. For your day has come, the time for you to be punished. Can y'all hear God opening the can? Yeah. yeah. That's scary right there. The arrogant one will stumble and fall, and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her town that will consume all who are around her. In these verses, we wanted to highlight something to you. The defining characteristic of Babylon. Even from the Tower of Babel all the way through Babylon the Great is arrogance. Yeah. Oh, arrogant one is how the Lord addresses Babylon. And like the tower in Genesis 10, Babylon will also stumble and fall and Babylon will also be burned with heavenly fire listen to this from Revelation 18 verses 7 and 8 give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself she's getting the same exact um, reward so to speak in her heart she boasts almost like she's arrogant I sit as queen I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Do you? Can you imagine if we're typifying Babylon as a woman? What a strange thing to say. I won't mourn, and I'm not a widow. Mm. Almost like some other woman in the book of Revelation has experienced a loss. Yeah. A woman presented as both a mother because she produced wow. the Israeli son and as a bride because she marries him. Come on. Yeah. So... In verse 32 of this chapter in Jeremiah, we read, I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all who are around her. Revelation 18.8 says, Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. Man, do you hear those Jeremiah undertones? Yeah. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. In both Revelation and and in Jeremiah, you can see the consumption of Babylon by fire. Yeah. How about verse 33 and 34? This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah as well. All their captains hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Yet, their Redeemer, Goel, is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. He will vigorously defend their cause. Come on, man. Vigorous! So that he may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. You hear the Lord's intensity. And Jeremiah presents the Redeemer, which is Goel, the Avenger, the Redeemer, as strong and mighty. 
We just read this, but I want to remind you, Revelation 18, 8. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by what? Fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Jeremiah also lists the people of Israel and Judah as oppressed and held captive. The book of Revelation describes Babylon the Great as dealing in the bodies and souls of men. Wow. Listen to Revelation 18, 11 through 18. The merchants of earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linens, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory. Costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and the bodies and souls of men. We're seeing some of this in our day. The fact that this hasn't happened shows that it's going to increase, and God is going to judge it and burn it down When you're thinking about this, and we have 20 minutes, and I think we're going to work out okay on our our timing. Bible prophecy teachers are quick to point out nations that enslave people even today. Number one, they're all Islamic. But number two, those same Bible teachers are missing something. It's Israel that's in view. It's not simply human trafficking. It's not the sex trade. It's Israel that is being taken captive. It's Israel's souls that are being treated that way. This is another marker of piling up judgment unto the heavens, and God will rain it down as Israel's kinsman redeemer. That's the point. You can't get that if you aren't connected with Jeremiah. But the more connected you are with Jeremiah, the more you understand what Revelation is talking about, and you would never do something as stupid as say, North America is Babylon. Although those are popular books right now. You would never think that for a bunch of reasons. But number one, North America is not enslaving the Jewish people. Yeah. I don't want to delay the point before we get into 35. But you notice the excessive luxuries, the treasures, the things that she's giving herself. Remember how fierce God's hatred for Edom's behavior was? Yeah. Is because they did it at the expense of their brothers, yeah. of the Jewish people. Yeah. Enslavement in and of itself is bad, yeah. but this Redeemer is taking specific issue with how they are building up wealth and treasures for themselves off the back of Israel. Wow. You'll hear this in 35 to 38. A sword against the Babylonians, declares the Lord, against those who live in Babylon, and against her officials and wise men. A sword against her false prophets, they will become fools. A sword against her warriors, they will be filled with terror. A sword against her horses and chariots, and all the foreigners in her ranks, they will become like women. Yeah. <laughs> There's a women's right movement. <laughs> a sword against her treasures, they will be plundered. A drought on her waters, they will dry up. For it is a land of idols, idols that will go mad with terror. Guys, it's hard to explain how much imagery is here, but we have to pick specific sections on our time frame. Throughout the Bible, idolatry is considered adultery. 
It's a simple equation. All of the prophets present it that way, and so does the law of Moses. And Babylon gets the world drunk on the maddening wine of her adulteries. You can hear here in Jeremiah that it's idols that will make men go mad with terror. Their intoxication with these things. Here, verse 39. So desert creatures and hyenas will live there, and the owl will dwell, and there the owl will dwell. It will never again be inhabited or lived in from, from generation to generation. Are you like me that occasionally it's hard to tell whether we're reading from Revelation or we're reading from Jeremiah? Yeah. 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 Um, we're going to take a brief minute and talk about a few parallels in these verses with the book of Revelation. I'm going to read to you from Revelation, and then Justin's going to point to the parallels. We would have liked to have had the opportunity to break these out on charts for you, but I'm just not very good at it, and I don't like to do it, and I figure I'll just preach it as many times as it takes for you to hear it. <laughs> Revelation 18.2. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Again, you can see the many parallels between Babylon in Jeremiah's day and the mysterious Babylon the Great of Revelation 17 and 18, which is still to come. But to name a few, you see in both passages officials, wise men, and kings. They're named at being present in both of these cities. Both are mentioned to be a land of excessive luxuries and treasures. Did you hear in Jeremiah a sword against her treasures? Yeah. Both mentioning the maddening nature of Babylon due to the idolatry and the nations getting drunk on what is going on in that city due to the idolatry. And both mention her ultimate destiny as a repository for impure spirits. Every unclean thing, owls in one account, unclean birds, jackals, demons. This is without going into the waters being dried up and how that might relate to the sixth bowl in Revelation 16. Now these issues are complex and they warrant further study that you should do on your own time because honestly that's how we got this study. But two things seem to happen to Babylon in Jeremiah's day and in the days of Revelation. Jeremiah 6 presents armies from the nations that definitely come against Israel, but in almost parallel fashion. Jeremiah 50 and 51 present the same kind of coalition of nations coming against Babylon. Yeah. It seems that at some point, the coalition of nations has factions that turn on Babylon. Like a beast turning and devouring a whore. <laughs> now, we would love to get into that now, but... We have already told you more than we know about this subject. And if we continued in it, this study will literally have no ending. We can go on and on about these parallels between Jeremiah and Revelation. So for now, we'll settle with verse 40. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, along with their neighboring towns, declared the Lord, so no one will live there. No man will dwell in it. So when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, what did that look like? 
what did what did the land of Sodom and Gomorrah look like when he was done with it? Yeah, stomped into the ground, driven into the earth, like completely and totally desolate. So, Pastor Nick, as uh, as we may have mentioned before, it's very possible that you've met many Sodomites in your life, <laughs> but you have never met a man from Sodom in your life. Yes. <laughs> that is a revelation. As we're moving. <laughs> As we're moving into the final verses for our evening tonight, we want you to notice the finality of the judgment of Babylon. Yep. And the number of times that this kind of phrasing occurs just in this chapter alone. It cannot be reconciled with Babylon's fall to the Medes. Yep. It just simply cannot be reconciled because of the nature of Babylon after it fell to the Medes and how it wasn't at all like the status of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. How about 41, Linton? Look, an army is coming from the north. A great nation and many kings are being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bows and spears. They are cruel and without mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horsemen. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard reports about them, and his hands hang limp. <laughs> Anguish has gripped him. Pain like that of a woman in labor. Like his loins were disjointed. Yeah. <laughs> like a lion coming up from, the, from Jordan's thickets to a rich pasture land. I will chase Babylon from its land in an instant. Come on. Who is the chosen one? I will appoint for this. Who is like me and, and who can challenge me? And what shepherd can stand against me? Loving the Lord's taunting people, he likes to call men women. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and today, today it would be received as a compliment. Yeah. That's a fluid situation. Yeah. But when it says that Babylon will fall in an instant, you can reference Revelation 18.10 where it says in an hour. Yeah. It's going to happen quickly. Yeah. Now, when we said I will chase uh, Babylon in an instant. Who is the chosen one I appoint for this? Who is like me and who can challenge me? Yeah. And what shepherd can stand against me? This is just like what we heard that was said to the Edomites. And apparently it was good enough to repeat. Yeah. Let me help you out with that. Who is, cho who is the chosen one I will appoint for this? He's asking who will be my Goel. Come on. Do y'all know the answer to that question? Yes. What's his name? Jesus. He's the Redeemer and he's also bringing vengeance. Who is like me and who can challenge me? He's saying, who will be the Antichrist that will stand against my Goel? Do you know who that is? No! <laughs> Although every new world leader is a candidate. <laughs> Everyone's on the edge of their seat like, ah! We have lots to learn. And then he asks, and what shepherd can stand against me? This is alluding to the outcome of the encounter between the shepherd, the Goel, and the Antichrist shepherd. And it'll be a statement of who can stand against me. And we know what the outcome is. That oh, yeah. Noel will bring vengeance and redeem his people, Amen. Israel. Amen. To, to just put this in our terms, this is a little bit like saying, do you know which foot I'm going to kick you across the face with? Do you know which side of your face it's going to land on? No, but you do know the outcome of what is going to happen. You can't stand against me. I mean, it's a very Hebrew way to taunt somebody. It's, it's really kind of fun. It, yeah. it, it shows that God wants you to engage with this text. Yeah. Yeah. Let's 
go ahead and move to 45. Therefore, hear what the Lord has planned against Babylon, what he has purposed against the land of the Babylonians. The young of the flocks will be dragged away. He will completely destroy their pasture because of them. At the sound of the Babylonians' capture, the earth will tremble. Its cry will resound among the nations. Guys, you need to consider some of this imagery. We're at the very end here. Anybody familiar with Prophet Isaiah speaking about the word of the Lord not returning in vain? Yeah. yeah. Numerous instances throughout the Psalms about the purposes of his heart will stand? Yeah. yeah. It says, I have purposed against the land of the Babylonians. It's a certainty that this will come to pass. Yeah. Verse 46 says, at the sound of, the ba at, at the sound of Babylon's capture, the earth huh. will tremble. Think through that for a minute. We're not going to discuss earthquakes. We're not going to discuss all kinds of things. But the earth itself is going to tremble at this moment. And its cry will resound among the nations plurally. In Jeremiah, the earth is trembling. And there is a cry that is resounding. I'm going to read to you out of Revelation. And I want you to notice that the heavens begin to cry and resound. So in Jeremiah... It's presented with earthly consequences. In the book of Revelation, all of that is true, but it is also adding the response of the heavens. Wow. It's an expansion on what Jeremiah already said. Wow. This is Revelation 19, picking up in verse 1. Hallelujah! After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. shouting. Yeah. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Yes. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. He's avenged. And again, they shouted! Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried! cried. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting! Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Come on. Right blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Yes. And he added, these are the true words of God. Amen. We're going to continue these parallels next week. And the more that you read these books and you're familiar with the 50 and 51 of Jeremiah and 17 and 18 of Revelation, the more that you'll see it. You're going to see things like the prophecy against Babylon ends by having a man tie the scroll to a rock and throwing the rock into the Euphrates River 
and, and Babylon's judgment is final. You'll see the same thing in Revelation, yeah. but it's not a rock and a scroll. It's a boulder into the sea. Yeah. Revelation is an expansion of what Jeremiah has already said. The thing that we'd like to focus our last few minutes on, though, is for a kinsman, say kinsman, kinsman. redeemer, to be a kinsman redeemer. Yeah. The term goel requires them to be the next of kin, a relative. And he is both a savior and the avenger of his relative. Yes. Throughout Jeremiah, where you see the word redeemer, the word is goel. He is an avenger and he is a redeemer of his relatives. Yeah. The book of Revelation is written from that standpoint. Yes. It never would have occurred to John that he would have to explain to us this was about Israel's salvation and redemption. In fact, the apostles, when they write, say not only from among the Jews, but also the Gentiles, because they thought for you... It would be a foregone conclusion that this was about Israel, right. and you would have to be reminded that you were included. Yeah. And yet all these thousands of years later, we find ourselves as Gentiles having to be reminded that he is their Goel, yeah. not ours. That we were adopted, but it is their family. It's an extraordinary turn of events. I want to remind you that Goel's redeem and avenge, that according to Vine's expository dictionary, the kinsman redeemer was responsible for preserving the integrity, life, property, and family name of his close relative. Why do you think that Romans 9 makes the point that the human ancestry of Christ descends from the patriarch. Come on. He is executing justice upon the murdering spirit of Babylon that from Genesis 10 all the way to Revelation 18 he has been patient with so that he can show mercy to the objects of his affection. But the book of Revelation is expanding on what Jeremiah said. Hey Babylon, your day is coming. This is an extraordinary moment for us. Some commentators have struggled with the idea that the day of the Lord is often presented as awful or terrible or dreadful, and at other times it's presented as glorious. Well, it entirely depends on whether or not you make it into the family of Messiah. That's right. Yeah. If you are in the family of Messiah, he is coming to avenge you. Yeah. He is coming to redeem you, first for the Jew, then for the adopted Gentile. But if you are not in the family of Messiah, then he's coming to execute vengeance upon you. That is the difference between the dreadful day of the Lord and the glorious day of the Lord. I pray that we make our calling and election sure Amen. in the family. Amen. There are some ways that you can do this. You need to reacquaint with what the criteria for sheep and goats actually are. You, you need to come to grips with the fact that God is preparing us 
to be what Messiah is to the very people Messiah is sent to. And that that never happens if you write them off. That never happens if you think they're unlovable, if they're irredeemable. If you believe that you stand in their place and therefore they have no place, how can you be Messiah to them? But as we reawaken to these truths, it will first be true for the way that we treat Jews. And then it will be true for every other human being because we love the God of Israel and he has taught us to relate to humanity this way. It does not work in the other direction. Listen to me. It is not right to say, well, all men are the same, and so I guess Israel should be treated this way too. That is backwards wrong theology. It's true first for Israel, and that is how you learn to relate to all other men. This is an extraordinary time in our church where the Lord is opening up all kinds of revelation to us. We are astounded by it ourselves. If you think it was difficult to sit and listen for the last hour and 59 minutes, you should consider the enormity of having to present this information, knowing full well that much of it's new for us. And yet it is what God is teaching our church at this time, and you are our church. You are his church. He wants us to get this. Would you please stand to your feet as Pastor Matthew closes us? see the riches of God's word. It's even a better prize or prize of war is to have these other three pastors standing up here with me. Hearing tonight, I think of, of many wonderful treasures that shape my perspective of God's plan for salvation. I want to just highlight two occurrences that I gleaned from and thought further about. Pull up Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What we glean from tonight, it is giving us proper perspective of what the gospel actually looks like. And that it is first for the Jew, and then for us adopted goyim and Gentiles. As I think about this, this gives us proper perspective of how to relate to the goel. Meaning that we stand with him as adopted sons and that means that we rightfully respect and honor the kinsmen that he is coming back to redeem I can't help but think of a classic pop song in American culture from somewhere back in the 60s so that keeps me safe it's a song called My Boyfriend's Back 
And the beginning line goes something like, my boyfriend's back, He's, or my, my boyfriend's coming back, you're going to be in trouble. Hey, ya, uh, hey, ya, uh, my boyfriend's back. This is not the cry of us goyim, this is the cry of Israel. And this is what we join. Last scripture is what we read towards the end. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. What attitude do we have in addition to what we've learned so richly tonight? Is to have that attitude. Amen. Hallelujah. So as my brothers share whatever they desire and pray and close us out, let's make sure we have a victorious attitude towards the Goel and the kinsmen that we get to participate with. Amen. Saints, it is a blessing to be able to stand before you. And we are from you. And we're working to grow as a gift to you. Our prayer tonight and our hope is that every one of you will recognize what the Spirit has been speaking to the churches in our midst. It's been turning our eyes from our own selfish interest to his body, first and foremost Israel, and to the members of the teams that are around you. These revelations are not random. They're revealed in perfect sequence for a good reason. When we take heart, when we recognize these things, God is able to empower you beyond your previous years. Who you were last year at this time will not be who you are next year. Amen. We will make sure of it together. We will grow to rise and become the body of Christ that he has called us to be on the earth. Amen. Come on, lift your hands with us. Mighty God, thank you for opening up your word.